0: Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to find all those social media accounts on your own, just go to my webpage, BrianMcLanahan.com. This B R I O N McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, forgotten founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show while you're there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also purchase book plates. If you want to get my autograph on one of my books, just purchase a book plate. I'll autograph it to you, send it out in the mail. You got my autograph, stick it in your book, you're good to go. The best way to support The Brian McClanahan Show is by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. When you do enroll for free again, you get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. Plus, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. And I've got a new course coming out very, very soon. Um, People that are McClanahan Academy subscribers already know about it, and they're already getting the best deal on it. So, uh, you want to be a subscriber, and you get the most inexpensive rates on the courses when they come out. So, go on out to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll If you're watching this before July 10th, you can still get that really great deal. So, once July 10th, the end of July 10th rolls through, we get to July 11th, that deal is gone. Okay, So, you're going to want to get in there before then. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It's a great website, a lot of bang for your buck. Not only history, but you also get philosophy, economics. I teach there with uh, Tom Woods, of course, and Kevin Goodsman, and Brad Berzer, and Jason Jewell, and Bob Murphy. A lot of great people uh, in that particular uh, classroom, Liberty Classroom. So you're going to want to do that. Um, it's a wonderful website, great resource, so you can use that as well. All right, well, let's talk about the topic for the day. This is also a listener-generated episode. And it's an interesting one because um, I've already done an episode on this. I focused on black confederates, right? So um, it's a a politicized topic, unfortunately. Like a lot of things have become in history, it's a politicized topic. One of the things I find interesting about this particular topic is the way the debate is framed. You essentially have, there's, there's a very famous book that the left likes to cite on the war by a man named Charles Dew. It's entitled Apostles of Disunion. The book is an openly uh or I should say an open polemic against quote unquote neo-confederates. He says it in the beginning of the book. I'm writing this book because I want to take down Neo-Confederates. The book I'm going to talk about today is the exact same thing. The exact same thing. It is a polemic against quote unquote Neo-Confederates or lost causers, as these people say. The entire aim of the book was to dispute the quote-unquote lost cause myth. It's no different than the Bone Kemper book that was uh, produced not long ago, the myth of the lost cause. So you have this entire section of of historians, some of them on the left, some of them on the right. The uh, do book, do is is a lefty. The book I'm going to talk about today is from a lefty. Uh, but then you have people like Bone Kemper, who's supposedly on the right. He's a neoconservative, and these neoconservatives and I just talked about David Blight, I mean, their entire goal, uh, I'm not David Blight, I'm sorry, David Barton, I've talked about Blight too, but David Barton, their entire goal is to refute this straw man that supposedly has so much power over our collective memory. The fact is, the people that support the idea that somehow the the war is more complex and there's more going on here than just slavery, they are such a small minority uh, that all these polemics that are produced against this group, it's really funny how this works. It's, it's, um, it's not even necessary. The overall view that the war was about slavery is the dominant view in America. I mean, you can't, to, to have anything else, what you have to have is a boogeyman, though, out there. The, well, these got these boogeymen. you got these people out there that believe something else, and we have to smash them. They can't believe anything but this. We have to smash them. See, this is the problem. It's history as a weapon. We have an enemy that we have to smash. It's no different than the war itself. The war has continued long after the battle was over because you've got a group of people that run around that want to smash the other side and that you cannot have any freedom of thought. You can't say, well, you know, that maybe there's something more to this. Maybe there were black Southerners who supported the Confederacy. I mean, what is wrong with saying that? What's wrong with saying that is it destroys the entire victim narrative that the left and the neoconservatives like to push. There's victims, and these victims have to be, uh, we have to champion these victims, or we have to say things like, there's there's a victimhood in America, America is bad. See, it's fundamentally bad. You You can't say, or it's, there's these victims and the Republican Party came in on a white horse to save the day. Either way, there's victims that we have to, that couldn't help themselves. You see, this is, if you think about it logically in that way, what you have done is reduce an entire group of people, over 3 million people, to victim status in the 1860s. Helpless victims who couldn't do anything for themselves. We know that's not the case if you simply read Eugene Genovese of Fogel and Engerman. Genovese's Roll Jordan role is a complex history of slavery in the South. It's not a laudatory history of slavery in the South. It exposes the brutality of the institution in many cases. But it also shows that slaves themselves had a much more active role in the institution than what you would get from the victim portrayal in uh, modern historical scholarship from people like Bruce Levine, who I'm going to talk about today, or David Blight, or a host of others who simply portray the institution through victim status. And what is the goal of that? What is the goal of victim status? I think is the question you have to ask. If you have the goal, if you say that people are victims, well, then you get into the idea of reparations, which, by the way, uh, now the, the there's a push for reparations now, again, which is not going to go anywhere. But I, the, Mitch McConnell, who now has a challenger who's not going to win um, in, the, in the 2020 election, Mitch McConnell had probably the funniest comeback for this that I've ever heard. Of course, there's a news report that Mitch McConnell's family owned slaves. And so he was asked about this. One of the little nitwit reporters went up, um, you know, one of these corporate press reporters went up and said, uh, "Hey, Mitch McConnell, what do you think? Uh, I mean, what do you have to say about this?" And he said, "Well, essentially, I'm paraphrasing. Essentially, um, I'm in the same position as Barack Obama because oh, Barack Obama's family were slave owners. It's funny. It was one of the funniest comebacks ever because what he's done is turned the entire narrative and he's attacked their hero, the the supposedly infallible." Barack Obama um, who does no wrong. But here we have Barack Obama with slave-owning ancestors. And so McConnell's like, look, I mean, I'm in the same boat as Obama. It's hilarious because he turned it back and he said, look, I mean, here's this, here's this black guy with slave-owning uh, ancestors. So, I mean, this is the case. Look, slavery was more complex than what the victim status will allow you to believe, Right. So the point of the victim status is to create an entire situation where you have these victims, and then of course you get to reparations. And not just that, it antagonizes race relations because if there, if you don't have that, if there was some type of um, paternalistic attitude in the South, and this is what Genovese essentially comes down on. He says, "Look, slavery," uh, and, I'm, and I, again I'm paraphrasing, but this is his essential argument. It was exploitative, exploitative. Of course, it was brutal. But southern slave owners, if you read the mind of the master class, viewed themselves as paternalistic uh, stewards of a population that they saw as inferior. There's no doubt about this. They didn't see slaves as being anywhere close to whites in status or capabilities. Nor did any northerners for the most part. Abolitionists might. uh, But Abraham Lincoln didn't see them that way. Um, but they viewed themselves as stewards of this population. They had a role to play in this, that they, that they were supposed to lead these people and supposed to uh, ensure that they had good religious training and et cetera, et cetera. So um, his, his, his role Jordan role is a complex view of slavery in the South. And anytime somebody wants to read a book on slavery, I just point them that. Eugene Genovese was not, and particularly when he wrote this book, he was still a Marxist. He was not interested in defending slavery. He was not interested in defending slaveholders. In fact, the exact opposite. What he did, though, is go out and look at the sources and say, well, here's what the sources say about slavery in the South. What was it? How do we look at how did slaves themselves deal with the institution? What kind of power did they have in the institution? And you find within this book that they had a tremendous amount of power. In fact, I'm going to get into one part of, of this Bruce Levine nonsense in a minute, the straw man nonsense where he says something that, I mean, just complete, complete stupidity. The other thing that's happened in this particular process of politicizing slavery for modern gain, which is what's happening, politicizing and creating the straw man boogeyman situation with slave owners and, uh, you know, the lost causers and Confederates and all this other nonsense, these terms that are used. I mean, it's just so silly and stupid. And in fact, that term Neo-Confederate is kind of going away, unless you're people like Bruce Levine or or David Blight or some of these others. They're now they're now moving away from Neo-Confederates, now lost causers. All right, we're going back to that. And eventually maybe it'll be Neo-Confederates again. Who knows what the heck they're gonna do? But they gotta have a boogeyman, right? So um, what they've also done is instead of using the word slaves, they use the word enslaved. Now this is curious because we don't go out in Rome. In Roman history, Roman historians don't say that the Romans had enslaved people. They just say they had slaves. Uh, the Greeks, Greek historians don't say that the Greeks had enslaved people. They say they had slaves. Um, the idea of using the term enslaved is to pr- is to promote uh, inhumanity or uh, this idea that um, somehow uh, you had this... Uh, um, Almost genocidal situation in the South. I mean, this is this is the way it's 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 done. It's 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 purposeful. And I remember reading this. People are starting to use this word "enslaved" instead of "slaves" because if you say "slaves," well, then you they say you almost normalize it. Well, all throughout American history, we use the term "slaves." Western in Western civilization, we still use the term. Do we say the Jews uh, who were uh, slaves of the Egyptians? Do we say they were enslaved enslaved Jews? No, we don't say that. We just say they were slaves. It's only one group of people in one section of history in the entire history of slavery in the world that are now called enslaved, and that's American slaves because the point is political, you see. This is the problem with all of it. It's political. What we're doing is politicizing everything. There's no reason to politicize this. You can't, look, the, the, the main goal of history is to understand and to tell the story. And that's not what Bruce Levine and David Blight and all these other morons who run around out there politicizing everything are doing. They're not there to tell the story. And he says, I mean, it, he, he comes across, all I'm trying to do is tell the story, but then don't use political terms. Don't use them then. If you just want to tell the story, don't use political terms. No one, and not even the abolitionists themselves, used the word enslaved. right? And they had everything to gain politically so don't use politically loaded terms and we can say that well then you're trying to understand if you want to say that you know it's incorrect to say that uh, slaves at the time were black confederates willing participants okay i mean I, I can i can get that i can i anybody that has half a brain would say yeah i mean we can say that if they're if they're slaves they're not willing participants in this Perhaps we don't know that because they didn't leave a record. So you can say perhaps they were, and we don't we don't know. But he actually he, he he refutes his own points in this article that I'm going to talk about. The other question I have of this, well, I'll save that thunder when we get there. So about uh, soldiers, okay? Now in my uh, my podcast episode on black Confederates, I point out that how do we define a soldier? What is a soldier? How do we define that? We know that the Confederacy themselves said that we didn't have black soldiers until 1865. We know that. I mean, that's true. They didn't They didn't come out and say, we've got all these black soldiers running around out there. They wouldn't have. They were slaves that were in support of the Confederacy. Now, we know that there were free people of color, as Earl Iams has, has called them, free people of color who supported the Confederacy, whether they were American Indians, whether they were Chinese, whether they were... Blacks themselves, I mean, we know Holt Holt Collier, for example. If there's just one black Confederate, there's black Confederates. We know at Camp Douglas in Illinois, when uh, Confederate prisoners were brought there, there were at least five black Confederates who were wearing the uniform, and a couple of them were shot to death because there was a position of the camp of the soldiers there, the Union soldiers, the Invalid Corps, they were called, that any black who showed up wearing a Confederate uniform was forfeit. They were going to shoot him. So we know this happened twice. There's clear evidence that there were, quote-unquote, black Confederates. Now we can say, well, Levine can say, well, these people were just slaves, and they were just duped into wearing, well, obviously they were fairly loyal. If these people were rounded up and then sent off to prison, they were pretty loyal. Um, So there's something else going on here, and maybe they were serving in some capacity. How do we know? We know that there were... In the Navy, we know there were black Confederates. We know that the USS Water Witch, which was captured by the Confederacy at one point, the first guy on board the ship who was shot dead was a black Confederate. He boarded the ship, was shot dead uh, as the Confederacy took the ship. So there's a black Confederate. We know these people existed. We know they existed. Levine tries to discount it. By saying, well, we know in his very smug little voice. I mean, if you ever listen to Bruce Levine, he is so annoying. He's got this smug little voice. There's this little conference he did. uh, And the funny thing about this is this little conference on black confederates, and he denies all of it. But he says, you know, we know that some people maybe in the heat of battle took up arms, not because they wanted to, but because they had to for their own life. How does he know that? There's no evidence of this, that they didn't take up arms because they wanted to shoot the Yankees. We don't know this. We know that some escaped. We know that some left. We know that, I mean, we, we know there's that part of it. But how does he know there weren't some people dedicated to it? How do we know? He doesn't. But he makes these statements, and he has a smug little look on his face, and he's doing this at a conference on a table, a panel, with a whole bunch of African-American scholars and an audience that has uh, many African-Americans in it. And they clap along, but what he's actually doing is denying a part of their history. And he's stoking the flames of racial tension. Because if there is some type of more complexity to this Southern black and white relationship, if it wasn't just all brutal oppression, well, then you get to a situation where you have to ask yourselves, well, what caused the terrible race relations of the uh, late 19th and early 20th century? What caused all that? Why did that happen? If we had these race relations that were different, If we had a situation where people are actually different and there was some type of communal relationship, and we know this was the case in the South, we know that white Republicans often complained and they actually portrayed the South as the area of miscegenation because you have all these mulattoes running around. If we know that white Northerners complained about the South being the section that was too interested in communal relationships between white and blacks, why is it that somehow it's now seen as the opposite? You see, when you do this, you actually create more racial tension than not. If you came out and said, look, there's actually evidence in the South that whites and blacks got along pretty well uh, at one point. Now, we know it was in a stilted relationship. We know that there was uh, a racial stratification in the South. That's not to say it didn't exist. We know it existed in the North. We know it existed there. But maybe there's something more to this. We know there were black slave owners in Louisiana. We know New Orleans was completely different from anywhere else. Uh, we know that there was uh, the Creole population um, was, they didn't consider themselves to be a lower class of people. Uh, we know there were black slave owners in the Carolina, South Carolina. We know that these people existed. We know that people like that were were different types of members in the community. We know we know that Southern society was more complex. So why is it that we have to take this very political stance and use the term like enslaved instead of just slaves? We know there's we know there were slaves. So let me get into this article first of all. Levine's got a new book coming out. Um, I'm sorry no, it's Kevin Levine, Kevin Levine, not, not Bruce Levine, Kevin Levine. Okay. Um, and um, we, he's, I keep saying Bruce, it's Kevin, excuse me, Kevin. There is a Bruce Levine as well. It's Kevin Levine. Um, And he's got this book coming out, and David Blight has blurbed it. Um, And this is what David Blight says about this book. Quote, the pose one sees in photographs of Confederate soldiers with their seemingly loyal camp slaves, in quotations, is in microcosm what the issue of black Confederates became in our own time. Opposed by neo-Confederates seeking legitimacy for their fool's cause. So think about that first phrase: opposed by neo-Confederates seeking legitimacy for their fool's cause. Well, that's not political at all, is it? That's not objective, is? I mean, that's not biased, is it? <laughs> so Kevin Levin or Levine, Levin Levine has provided this mythic problem. What it dearly needs. A carefully researched and beautifully written history. First of wartime itself, then of the lost cause memorial period, and then of the Civil War sesquicentennial in which the question of blacks and gray would not die. Levin's book needs to be widely read as a rich history drawing a life out of a lethal narrative of wish fulfillment. A lethal narrative of wish fulfillment. Um, he, what he, they're creating a straw man and a boogeyman. Yes, Bruce Levine. I'm sorry is one of these other guys that runs around uh, with the black Confederate thing, where he goes up and he's the one that does the, the, the smug little stuff. Kevin Levin is not a PhD. He is a just a, an amateur historian who has now worked his way into this black Confederate situation, um, and he's become kind of a he's kind of a celebrity in that particular side of thing. Uh, let's just start with this piece. This is in the Smithsonian uh, magazine, Smithsonian.com. Um, and he says, uh, walking the Gettysburg battlefield today, it's easy to imagine the Union Confederate armies dueling for control of the Pennsylvania town and its surrounding picturesque fields. Um, once, but he says, uh, for many tourists, no visit to Gettysburg is complete without retracing the steps General Robert e. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, those Confederates who crossed the open fields towards the Union line on Cemetery Ridge on July 3rd in what is still popularly remembered as Pickett's Charge. Once safe behind where the Union lines held strong, however, Few turn around and acknowledge the hundreds of enslaved people who emerged from the woods to render assistance to the tattered remains and remnants of the retreating men. Enslaved workers constituted the backbone of the Confederate war effort. Although stories of these impressed workers and camp slaves have been erased from our popular memory of the war in favor of mythical accounts of black Confederate soldiers, and he links to his book there. But again, it's a straw man. He doesn't show where, I mean, people have said that these people weren't slaves, See, it's a straw man. You you say that there's a mythical account of these people as Confederate soldiers. No one's saying that. No one's saying that slaves are, quote unquote, Confederate soldiers. Now, I would say this, though, and I've said this. How do we define a soldier? In the modern U.S. military, we have support staff, right? We have people that are cooks. We have people that are teamsters. We have people that sit at a desk all day. We, have, we know this. We have people that do everything they can to avoid deployment and that yet they're still considered soldiers. So are people that are in support roles, are they soldiers? Now, the Confederacy themselves didn't recognize these people as soldiers, but how do we define a soldier? I think this is an important question. How do we define that? If we want to say, all right, well, the Confederacy didn't find them as soldiers, okay, but in the modern era... How do we define a soldier? We have for every one man in the field, we have 30 men behind the scenes, or 30 people, I should say, behind the scenes, who are support staff for that particular soldier. So are we saying that only combat people are soldiers? Is that what we're gonna say? I mean, if we want to say that, then we have to discount a large number of the US military that are supposedly soldiers that are soldiers, but they're really not. Now, what about training? You could say, well, but all these people have been trained to be soldiers. They all went through basic training. So, okay, let's take that position. All right, they have to go through basic training to be considered a soldier. Well, that would mean most of the Confederate Army weren't soldiers because there wasn't any basic training for them either. In fact, it's been pointed out that part of the problem with the Confederacy is that there wasn't enough training. These people were just militia. They would come in and out. Uh, there wasn't, it wasn't because they weren't dedicated to things, but they had things to do. This was a citizen militia army, which is actually more impressive, if you think about it, than anything else. Uh, because these people were doing it all on their own. Now, we know this was the case in the North, but then there was the draft in the North. We know there was also a draft in the South, so people were conscripted in. But the North did have a much more regimented training system eventually than the South ever had. So was it just because of training that makes them a soldier? I mean, is that the case? Well, so uh, who is a soldier then? And what about, what about conscripted people? Are those people impressed? Absolutely they're impressed. They're impressed into service. They're impressed workers. They're impressed soldiers. So is somebody who's drafted now a slave? Well, if you're a libertarian, of course that's the case. If, if you are a libertarian from a libertarian position once you're drafted in the army you become a slave to the army can you leave if you do, if you walked away and said you know what, I'm not doing this anymore you'd be shot for desertion so what's the difference now we know that in the south this kind of stuff happened and these slaves not enslaved these slaves we're not going to use the the uh, the political term these slaves would come and go at times he even no he even says this these people would leave they'd have to go to see family members whatever they came back and forth And he's correct when he says enslaved workers constituted the backbone of the Confederate war effort. We know that slaves, without slaves, the Confederacy wouldn't have worked. Because you had the entire home front, most of the men went off to fight in the war. 75% of the white Southern population was fighting in the war. So that means very few white Southerners were left behind. So the South was essentially run by women and slaves. And if there was going to be this huge slave insurrection, there's the perfect opportunity. They could have rebelled. They could have thro- overthrown. I mean, you had, you had, there's no men around to fight. Now, you had the home guards and some of these other things that, that uh, where, uh, you know, these, uh, like, uh, what is it, Cold Mountain and others talk about, where, you know, supposedly there was still this oppressive regime left behind. But still, this was the perfect opportunity for insurrection. It didn't happen. Why? Now, I, Levin Levine, or Levin, Kevin Levin, is going to get into this. He uses his own in, own interpretation, his own opinion, without any fact. This is the problem with his whole position. Uh, anywhere between 6,000 and 10,000 enslaved people supported in various capacities Lee's army in the summer of 1863. Many of them labored as cooks, butchers, black... I mean, labored. He doesn't say served. He says labored. You see, there's a difference. Did they not serve these things too? No, but labored. you got to look at the politically charged terms. Cooks, butchers, blacksmiths, hospital attendants, and thousands of enslaved men accompanying Confederate officers as their camp slaves or body... Why, why do you say encamped enslaved men or body servants? These men performed a wide range of roles for their owners, including cooking, cleaning, foraging, and sending messages to families back home. Slaves off... Slave owners remained convinced... These men would remain fiercely loyal even in the face of opportunities to escape, but this conviction would be tested throughout the Gettysburg campaign, but not often proven inaccurate. Levin even recognizes that. Um, so let me get down uh, to, um, he, he mentions that there was an attempt to capture contraband and other things. I mean, so this, this is the typical, well, Lee was just out there to pick up slaves. Uh, and and so were the Southerners. They were going to find uh, looking for hidden property. Um, is is that so? He's actually one one Confederate says his own slave is looking for a hidden property. So his hidden property is that always slaves or is that something else? I mean, how do we know? Um, he says, "Quote: Very few accounts exist today of black men marching with Confederates in the heat of battle at Gettysburg." But in quote in, in parentheses. The previous summer's campaign in the Virginia Peninsula, where the two armies were in close proximity to one another for an extended period of time, contains a wealth of such narratives. This is where Frederick Douglass actually pointed out, you've got thousands of black Confederates. And that has served as the basis for this claim that there were thousands of black Confederates because you had this situation where you had Southerners, black Southerners out there on the battlefield at times. Um, now, He says this, camp slaves like Moses, who, for whatever reason, were committed to their owners, may do with the limited resources available and resign themselves in the end to passing on their owners' parting words to their grieving families. Resign themselves. How do we know the reason? How do they know that they didn't uh, enthusiastically do this? We don't, but the just the language he used here, for whatever reason, resign themselves. I gotta do it. These men chose not to escape, and while there can be little doubt that these stories convey evidence of strong bonds between owner and slave, the tendency of lost causers to frame them around the narrow motif of unwavering loyalty fails to capture other factors that may have influenced their behavior. Where is the evidence, Levin? None. Zero. He has zero. And then he says what he thinks this might have been. Some likely anticipated the brutal punishments that accompanied their recapture. Or punishment that might be netted out to family members in their absence. Um, How do we know this? How do we know? We know Genovese talks about runaways and the punishment, that it could be brutal, it could happen. But he never says anything, not one thing, about family members being punished because somebody ran away. There is at least anecdotal evidence of perhaps entire communities being punished for a runaway, particularly conspirators co-conspirators but there's no evidence of family being punished for this. This is just conjecture on Levin's part and it's just so stupid while others worried about how they might be treated once behind union lines. how do we know that? Is there evidence for this? Levin uh, we know that uh, it, there was uh, blacks in the north were not treated very well at times. They might have been treated better in the South. What he's acknowledging here is that maybe it was worse in the North than it was in the South. Some eagerly reunion with their own families. Okay, I mean, but um, he's trying to say, well, the evidence is all that there are strong bonds, but maybe it's something else. If the evidence points in this direction, why try to refute it? This This is what I can't get with these nincompoops. If the evidence points in this direction, why say, well, but it could be something else? Why? Why say that? If the evidence is there... If this is what the evidence reveals, then why isn't it that? Lieutenant Sidney Carter's wounding at Gettysburg cut his life short, but before his death he requested that his camp slave Dave take everything he had and bring it home, where each of them would be offered as a parting gift to his family members. More important than the transportation of personal possessions, however, Dave also conveyed the final thoughts of his master to loved ones. Carter wanted it known that he was willing to die, and that he talked to the clergyman about dying, though so weak he could hardly be understood. He assured his family they would meet again in heaven. Absent body news that a soldier had been comforted in his final hours and had prepared himself for death reassured family members that the loved ones experienced what 19th century Americans understood as a good death. Um, so I mean, this is this is uh, important. I remember there's there's actually a, a, a historic marker around where I live, and it talks about the loyal slave that's tended to the Confederate soldier, and um, it's it's near uh, it's it's uh, at a at a plantation home, and you've got all these lefties running around. Oh, here's the myth of the lost cause again. It's just the myth of the lost cause. I mean, there's evidence of all of this stuff, evidence all over the place. The loss of Colonel Henry King Bergwin, Jr., killed on the first day of fighting in Gaysburg, was a devastating loss only for the twenty sixth North Carolina, but also, as described by a fellow officer in the regiment, to his servant to his servant Kinson, who takes it bitterly enough. Once Bergwin's body was given an appropriate barrel, Kinson proposed transporting the young Colonel's personal items home along with the information about his death that he knew his family craved. The regiment's quartermaster reassured the family that the Colonel's items, including a spy glasses, wash, toothbrush, and various memoranda, Books uh, plus $59 were all safe under Kinson's care. I n- never saw fidelity stronger than anyone, noted the quartermaster in a letter. Four years later, Bergman's body was reinterred in Oakwood Cemetery in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, I mean, but this guy was obviously doing it because he was, uh, you know, there's, he was afraid of getting a beating. I mean, this is the beginning, before this, he says this, and then he, he, he contradicts himself. These people were just worried about getting a beating if they ran away, but, you know, here we go. Here's all the evidence that points to the opposite. Nobody should ever get this book. In fact, the only thing it would be good for is landfill material. But, I mean, if you want, you know, to, to have a good laugh, I'm sure it'd be fun to read it. In the immediate aftermath of the battle and continue throughout the Confederate Army's retreat to Virginia, other camp slaves and enslaved men... Why don't why you say other camp slaves? And in, why don't you say that? Other slaves... However, abandoned their posts. A quartermaster in John Bell, whose division has observed a great many Negroes, have gone to the Yankees. Union cavalry, such as one led by Judson Kilpatrick at Monterey Pass on July 5th, hampered the retreat of tired Confederates and resulted in additional prisoners being taken, including the camp servants attached to the Richmond Howitzers, as well as Major William H. Chamberlain's servant, Horse, and personal equipment. Some of these men were briefly held as prisoners in Union prison camps. Once released, they joined Union regiments or found their way to towns and cities across the north looking for work. Um, We know that happened, um, but they weren't always released. Sometimes they were shot. For many Confederate officers who were separated from the servants as a result of the battle or the confusion of the retreat, disappointment awaited them, as it did Captain Waddell of the 12th Virginia, who rejoined his unit on July 8th, only to learn that his servant Willis had run off with his personal baggage. These heroic stories of abandonment were quickly supplanted by the extraordinary steps of these heroic stories of abandonment—heroic, it's, her, it's heroic, it's heroic—to abandon the language again were quickly supplanted by the extraordinary steps of fealty, take, fealty taken by enslaved men like Moses, Dave, or Kinchin and became the centerpiece of the Lost Cause movement, which stressed unwavering and questioning obedience of slaves to the masters. Well, I mean, come on now. Again, this is straw man nonsense. People knew there was complexity in all of this stuff. And yeah, there was uh, attempts made in the in the period of, of, when uh, creating Confederate monuments to recognize the um, role that slaves played in the war effort. I mean, this was done. Uh, but it's just, it's silly. I mean, what Levin here, Kevin Levin has done, and Bruce Levine as well, and David Blight as well, what they've all done is create a boogeyman straw man for no reason. As the Confederate Army reorganized in the weeks following the campaign, the thin ranks of many regiments were magnified by the absence of its enslaved. But we know there were thousands of men that marched back, and this was actually remarked at too, that that you didn't have thousands stay behind. You might have had some, but not thousands. Gettysburg may not have been the great turning point of the war for Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. The Army would go on to fight for close to two more years, but the Gettysburg campaign did signal a crisis of confidence in soldiers' belief and their slaves' unwavering fidelity. It did? It did. Okay, today some of these stories pull from the historical record being found on hundreds of websites, not of the, as the stories of enslaved men, but as black Confederate soldiers. Well, I, I I'd love to see these hundreds of websites. Why not link them in? Why not? I mean, he links his book, he links the Emancipation Proclamation, but hey, where is the evidence here, uh, Levin? Hundreds of websites. This mythical narrative, which dates only to the mid-1970s, would be completely unrecognizable to the enlisted men and officers in the Army of Northern Virginia. For real Confederates, from Robert E. Lee on down, camp slaves and other enslaved workers, the entire institution of slavery really were crucially ultimate success of the Army in the field and the Confederate insurgency as a whole. Um, no one's denying that. I mean, this is the, these people create this straw man. These people are all denying. No one's denying that. No one's denying that at all. So they're making they're making a grand story out of something that no one is denying. All right. So, all that said, I went a little long in this particular podcast uh, because uh, this is such a stupid article, and you've got Levine and Levin, and uh, you know you get David Blight and all these morons running around uh, with this uh, do with this uh, straw man narrative that doesn't really exist. Um, the fact that there might be a few, I mean, you make, they make it out like there's this huge movement, um, of, uh, of people out there that are, uh, just continue to promote something that not many people even believe. Um, it's, it's so funny to me. These people, the, the quote unquote, neo-Confederates, the lost cause, all that has very little, um, Say in the historical profession anymore in in any way whatsoever. But no, uh, we have to write entire books about it because there's a boogeyman out there we got to get. We got to smash him. So uh, that's my take on Kevin Levin, Bruce Levine. Sorry for the. uh, I I looked at this and I didn't realize Levin wrote this. I thought Levine wrote it, Bruce Levine. But it's Kevin Levin who's just as bad. Uh, But in fact, in some ways, worse uh, because. His credentials are zero. But anyways, uh, I wanted to get into this. This was sent by a listener. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, uh, and I'll see you next time on The Brian <laughs>